So we've covered four paragraphs already in this chapter that deal with the nature of the universal church. And now we're ready to move to discuss what we typically call the local church. I don't know where that phrase came from uh, or where it originated, but usually when we think about a local church, we're talking about a specific congregation or a specific assembly of people or those assemblies like our own all over the world. So far we've seen that God does have a people from all times and all places who are His because of an invisible work of grace. We've seen that that invisible work does not remain invisible, but it will manifest itself in visible fruits in the lives of what we call visible saints, people where we can see the act or the work of God in them, coming out of them in their lives. We've seen that regardless of imperfect and even degenerating churches, Christ will always have a kingdom in this world. Uh, whether, whether we can see it with our own eyes or not, He always has a people in the world. And we've seen that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and the Pope of Rome is not the head of the church. And we saw that in paragraph 4. As the head of the church... Just point, just looking back at that paragraph for a second. Christ executes his, his role as head of the church, or He's been appointed head of the church by His Father, and it says He's been given all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church. Now, as we move forward, the next 11 paragraphs are going to, con- are going to discuss the local church, and... Here's a quote from James Renahan. He says, the bridge, he's talking about the the overall uh, way that the confession is put together. The bridge between the universal church and the local church is Christ's power. So we saw in paragraph 4, he's been appointed head of the church and he's been appointed all power for certain things. Okay, now we're going to see how that power is manifested and executed, and the way that it is manifested and executed is in the local church. And we see the, the I guess you could say, the other end of the bridge in the opening words of the fifth paragraph, uh, which reference the execution of Christ's power. And so I'll read just a little bit of that paragraph now. In the execution of this power, again the power just referenced in paragraph four, wherewith he is so entrusted... The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto Himself through the ministry of His Word by His Spirit those that are given unto Him by His Father. So as we move from the universal church to the local church, what we're seeing here is that the initiation, the the bringing of someone into both of them is the same. It's the effectual call of God Here it's ascribed specifically to uh, Christ as our Savior. So this we could call this the salvific origins of the local church. And the first thing we see with regard to the salvific origins of the local church is the call of the shepherd. It says, The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto Himself through the ministry of His Word by His Spirit those that are given unto Him by His Father. And if you have a copy of Confession with Scripture references, the first reference is John chapter 10, verse 16. So we're going to look just a little bit at John chapter 10. 
if you look at verse 22, it says, At that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Um, the point there is that verse 22 begins sort of a separate discussion. This is not, it's not one continuous discourse, but John has put together several uh, conversations between Christ and others with the theme of Christ as shepherd of His people. We know that those addressed in John chapter 10 would have known Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. They would have known that. They were Jews. In Psalm 78 verse 52, it's speaking of God, it says, Then He led out His people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. It's talking again about the exodus from Egypt. He drew His people out, led them like a flock. In Psalm 80 verse 1, we read these words, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. That's clearly speaking of God. Specifically there in, in the uh, heavenly glory, seated above, above the cherubim. In Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, we read, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The point being, the Jews understood very well the imagery of God as their shepherd. From the Exodus, throughout the, their wilderness sojournings and the, the, the time after the Exodus and all of their history, even looking forward prophetically when the shepherd would gather his sheep to himself again, they understood this. God as shepherd is not a, is not a strange doctrine amongst the Jewish people, especially of Jesus' day. So then we come to John chapter 10, and again the reference is verse 16, but look at verse 14. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. I am the good shepherd. This is not a statement about how good that Christ has imbibed current trends in leadership skills. He's not saying, guys, listen, I'm a really good leader. You should follow me. What he's saying is, I am the divine, heaven-enthroned shepherd of Israel. That's me. They, they knew that language. He comes and says, all that that you know about a shepherd and his people and God as shepherd and the people as the sheep, I'm the good shepherd. That's me. That's what he's saying. Hebrews 13 verse 20 concurs. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. That's him. He's our shepherd. The man Christ Jesus is the shepherd God of Israel. Now the confession, there's a point to all that. The confession is taking up the idea of gathering saints into local churches and attributes that work of gathering saints into churches to Christ and then references John chapter 10, Christ as the shepherd. And what this does is this paints this call into the assembly 
in the vivid colors of the great divine shepherd of prophecy calling his people to himself. John 10:16 is the reference. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now you might think to yourself, well, it says one flock, one shepherd. That seems to be talking about the universal church. So why would this be used as a reference to describe the gathering of Christ's people into local churches? I think, I think the point of the reference is really the underlying theme that, that Jesus is, or the point Jesus is making here, is this, these sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about Gentiles. He's, he's going to gather in Gentiles from among the nations. Christ is the shepherd. His people are the sheep. Christ calls His people to follow Him. And then the next reference that we're given is John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. What, what is the truth that's being supported there? Again, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world. That's, that's the picture here. Universal church spans the entire globe. Okay? So then, on the entire globe... There are people that Christ calls out to Himself and around the whole world He puts them into these local churches. The point our Lord is making in John 12, 32 is that as He goes to the cross, the worldwide activity of Satan in holding the nations in ignorance is about to come to an end. Satan is to be bound and cast out. The house of the strong man is to be plundered by Christ. And the spoils of that plundering, I referenced this this morning, is souls gathered from among the nations. The universal church is worldwide. Therefore, local churches are going to be a worldwide phenomenon. And all of that is initiated by the call of the shepherd. As, as head of the church, he calls his people. Next we see the instrumentation that Christ our shepherd uses to call his sheep to himself in these churches. We've already seen John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So he says, I'm going to call them. I'm going to call them by my voice. That Jesus said that. So where do we hear the voice of the shepherd today? Notice the confession puts it like this. The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world, that is the whole world, unto Himself through the ministry of His Word by His Spirit. So, so the instrument is the ministry of the Word accompanied by the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus calls people. Who's called into these churches? The Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto Himself through the ministry of His Word by His Spirit those that are given unto Him by His Father. Now flip back a, a couple pages to John chapter 6. He calls those that are given unto Him by His Father. John six thirty seven to 39. Listen to the language. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. In John 17, Jesus prayed, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Those chosen by God in eternity belong to the Father. They're His people. And just as with many other aspects of Christ's mediation, it is the Father, God the Father, who appoints the Son to be the executor of His estate, to to oversee the affairs. And so the Father elects a people. They belong to Him. The Father gives those people to the Son and says, Son, I'm charging you to go ransom these people. The Son comes into the world and ransoms these people by shedding His blood for their sins, thus purchased throughout all history are a people elected from eternity by the Father, given to the Son, and it's those people who are called into the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ, our great shepherd, would say in John 10, 15, I laid down my life for the sheep. The Father gave them to me. I've come, to, I've come to take them. The way that I get them is by dying. So as the good shepherd, to get my sheep, I have to come and die, lay down my life for them to purchase them. So Christ executes His role as head of the church by calling His own sheep by name through the preaching of the gospel. The ministry of the Word by the Spirit, and this will be applied to those elect from eternity. Now, just as an aside, when it says he, or we say that He calls them by name or, or uh, that type of language, I don't think we ought to expect a, an audible voice with our first, middle, and last name to come in the preaching of the Word. The point is it's a, it's a personal, individual work of the Spirit upon the believer. Don't wait to hear your voice called. Just wait to hear the preacher say, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you know the, the, the external call is coming. And you respond to that. But Christ does this for His sheep. Next we see the purpose of this call by the Good Shepherd. The purpose of the call. Christ calls His sheep through the ministry of the Word and the Spirit by His Spirit, those that are given unto Him by His Father. Notice the language. That they may walk before Him in all the ways of obedience, which He prescribeth to Him in His Word. Now, uh, here we see from our confession, really what I've been hinting at for several weeks in the sermons. Notice the purpose. It, this is not to the negation of forgiveness of sins and pardon. This is in addition to that. We have the language. What did He call us for? He called us that, that the language of purpose, we may walk before Him in obedience. He's calling out a people to be His own special people. Yes, our shepherd has laid down His life for us. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Through faith, we receive pardon and forgiveness. We're justified by God. We're welcomed into the family of God through adoption. All of those are works of God that He performs upon us. But all of this certainly demands, like we said this morning, that we would, uh, as heaven-born sons of God, we would bear the family resemblance. Practically speaking, in our daily lives, we will walk before Him in all the ways of obedience which He prescribeth to us in His Word. In other words, we obey His commandments. 
and the commandments we find in His Word. The reference here is to the Great Commission again, but specifically verse 20, Matthew 28, 20, "...teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always." to the end of the age. The expectation is that through the ministry of the church of Christ on earth, those called by the Good Shepherd into the pale of the church will be taught. That's, that's the, remember we, several weeks ago we talked about that. Um, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, right? We don't, we don't teach them to prepare them, to get them ready and good enough for church membership. We bring them in to be taught. It doesn't, this is not a, a, a reference merely to giving out knowledge. Jesus doesn't say, teaching them all that I've taught. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. That's practice. That's putting into practice the teachings of Christ. And this is central to the mission of the church. We evangelize, we preach the gospel, disciples are made, we bring them into the pale of the church, we train them and teach them in the confines of the church, and we just continue to replicate that. Uh, cycle until Christ returns. That's what we do. Now, one might ask, how could this happen, especially if we see Christ uh, giving this, this commission and we see the, the great expanse of the mission? How is it even possible to take all of those called by Christ, a group that we know is made up of people from all around the world, and get them together somehow for teaching and training in all of the ways of Christ? How can we possibly do that? We know we have to come up with a Zoom meeting or something, right? We've got to figure out some way that everybody, all of the, the elect in the world can hear the teaching, right? How do we do it? God in His wisdom says, I've got a plan to make this work perfectly until, until I come back. It, this will work. And it's through the gathering of saints into churches. We know that infinite wisdom has already taken into account and given us the perfect method for accomplishing this seemingly impossible task. The answer is found in gathering these called saints together into numerous assemblies stationed all around the world. So then the next thing we see is gathered saints. Our confession reads, starting a new sentence, "...those thus called..." He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which He requireth of them in His Word. Notice the constituents of these churches. Those thus called. The word thus means in this way. Those who, were in, who are in this way called. Those... Saints, recipients of the invisible work of grace, elect of the Father in eternity, those given to the Son, those redeemed by the blood of the Son, those called by the Good Shepherd, those who have heard the voice of the Shepherd, those people make up the church. In other words, only those who make up the invisible church should be gathered into the membership of the visible church. Those, that's the constituents, the saints, those thus called. And then we see a command to gather into churches. Those thus called, He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches. Now you might find it interesting that the confession asserts that the Lord Jesus, head of the church, commands participation in the local church. There are a lot of people who would say, I don't see church membership in the New Testament. Chapter and verse, please. Where does it say that? 
Again, these are the type of people who've already determined how the Bible will teach them what it's going to teach them. And if it doesn't fit their, their prescribed way, then they say, well, I just don't see it. Again, we have to remember that the Bible was not written like an instruction manual, such that all that is expected or even commanded by God is set forth in terse, imperative statements in list form. We, we do have that in the Ten Commandments, but the Bible is not page after page of just list of command. That's not how it's presented to us. Much of what is commanded of us is set forth to us by way of implication or example. Uh, expressly stated or necessarily contained is the language of, of our confession. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18. This would be what I would say a command by way of implication or inference. Verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them." Now listen to how Pastor Sam Waldron explains how we could infer the implication of this passage. He says, quote, If Jesus commands that offenses be brought to the church, which He does, and He commands the church to rebuke such offenses and ultimately to exclude the impenitent, then necessarily He commands the existence of such local churches. You see, the, the reasoning is very simple. It's very logical. Jesus Christ is not so foolish as to give express commands regarding a specific entity which He does not Himself expect by implication to exist. It's common sense. Or we could think of this by way of example. Example that we are commanded to gather into churches. Did He command churches to exist? Well, again, we could, we could read the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. If you wanted to read a, a consistent narrative, you could read Matthew and jump straight over to the book of Acts and pick up. Or you could read Luke and Acts together, which were originally one, one uh, piece of literature. Just read it straight through. And, and Christ gives a type of great commission at the end of the book of Acts as well, or of, of the book of Luke as well. So you see, here's what Christ commanded to happen. Then you continue reading, and you get to the book of Acts. And you see how the apostles of Christ, filled with the Spirit of Christ, acting with the authority of Christ, carried out that commission. In other words, when they heard go into all nations and make disciples, 
teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. When, when they heard the Great Commission or the way it's put together in Luke, when they heard that, what did they hear? Right? We don't have to guess about what it meant to them. Just read the book of Acts. That's what it meant. That, that they, they did it. So you read the book of Acts. And you can't read the book of Acts honestly without seeing that the Apostle Paul clearly set the example, amongst others, but the Apostle Paul clearly set the example with Christ's authority that saints in every town ought to gather into churches. What did he do? He traveled around, started churches, traveled back around, appointed elders in every church, strengthened the churches, set things in order. And then we have the pastoral epistles. Timothy, what you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy, you just keep doing what I did with you. Just keep replicating, keep multiplying. Here's how you appoint elders. Here's how you appoint deacons, etc. So we, we, we would take that and we would say, this is how the Apostle Paul, though he wasn't present for the Great Commission, um, I, I believe he got that and plenty more in his discipleship with Christ. What did he hear? Read the book of Acts. What did he do? His doing shows us what Christ commanded him to do. He, he wasn't discipled by Christ and then just said, well, that's what he said, but I, I think I'm just going to try another route. That's, that's not what happened. We see it played out. It's not given to us in chapter and verse command and prohibition form. It's laid out by way of example. What did they do? And if we take the apostolic example as the authoritative design of Christ, then we cannot escape this truth. Christ has commanded that the saints gather into churches. If somebody says chapter and verse, please, just say, just start with Matthew. Find the blank page in the middle of your Bible. Start there. Just read to the end. And tell me what you come up with. Then we have a command to walk. Those thus called, He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches. Now listen to that language. He commandeth to walk together. That is not the language of a bare minimum Sunday morning worship service. That's not walking together. We are not confessing here merely Christians ought to go to church. We believe that wholeheartedly. This is beyond that. It's more than that. Now we often hear this phrase, and some of you might get a little lump in your throat as soon as I say it out loud like I do. It's sort of a gag reflex. Do life together. We've all heard that, right? Now I don't know about you, but the way that that's typically presented and imbibed by churches is that Christians ought to spend time together. Maybe it's a cookout, maybe it's a bonfire, maybe you go bowling. Just be around each other. Just, just do life together or life on life. You know, that's the, the missional language. The sense of walking together according to Scripture is not that we just join our schedules so that we happen to end up at the same place doing the same thing at some point. For the Christian, walking, and we've seen this several times recently from Scripture, walking is a reference to the distinctly Christian life. It's Christianity lived out. That's our walk. 
So to walk together is to unite in such a way that we become participants, not just in a Sunday service, but in the Christianity of other people. Your Christianity becomes entwined with my Christianity and vice versa so that our Christian walk, our life, is carried out together. Now, this is not communal, like we have to live together, anything like that, but it's going to require a little more than just looking at the back of somebody's head or letting them look at the back of my head. It's more than that. It's bearing one another's burdens. It's encouraging one another, exhorting one another, rebuking one another, instructing one another, guiding one another. In the do life together, life on life model, time might be spent together. And the result is really not much different than if a group of lost people got together and went to the bowling alley, right? Well, we had a good time, got to see my friends, see y'all, we'll see you next time. If it's... If there are people who profess to be Christians, it might be cleaned up a little bit in, in activities and speech, but the, the effect of it is not much different. But from a biblical perspective, walking together results in sanctification. This is what's what Christians are looking for. It's a closer walk with Christ. It's not saying I had a good time with those people. It's I'm closer to Christ having been around those people. If Christ has commanded such walking together, and again here I would, I would point to, to all of the one another passages in the New Testament. Figure out how you can do that without being a part of a church. He's commanded it. These are things that we have to do. It assumes more than just showing up to a worship service. It requires commitment. It requires consistency. It requires investment of life and love for your church family. That's why we, have, we put such a, raise, uh, such a high bar for membership. For, for a lot of churches, membership is presented this way. Come to the class so that we can sell you our church and get you to buy in. That's not biblical, nor is it historical. For us, membership is, we hear you would like to present yourself for membership. We will vet you and welcome you into our number under the assumption that there is a commitment that your Christianity is going to become entwined with mine and mine with yours so that I, I lay down at night or wake up in the morning or throughout the day and thinking about the sanctification and Christian life of somebody else. It's, it's on me and it's on you. Membership matters in the church because of this very thing. I wonder if there might be some here of our own number who are very consistent in their attendance upon meetings, but really have no intention to walk together. They just want the perfect attendance certificate like we got in school, right? I always got that. I just want the perfect attendance. I'm always there. But who is made more holy because you were there? Who was encouraged because you were there? How are you encouraged? Would your Christian life or the life of your soul your advancement in sanctification, your love for Christ, would any of that be affected at all if you just stopped coming? Or maybe you just went somewhere else. Would, would your Christian life be changed in the least if you just said, well, we'll just go over here. If, if not, that's a good sign that you're probably not really walking with people. Of course, your schedule might change, your geographical location might change, but would it have any real effect upon your Christianity? 
For many people, whether it's this group here or that group over there or the church two towns over, it really makes no difference to them where they are on Sunday morning just as long as they feel like they went to church somewhere. That's what their Christianity consists of. And they wouldn't experience any real change in their Christian life if they went somewhere else. That Again, that's evidence you're not living, you're not walking together. If that's the case for you, either you're not in a healthy place spiritually or you have figured out a way to get what Christ promised in a way other than the way Christ promised to give it, which is through walking together with a, a local church. We're commanded to walk together, and we'll see more about that in the next paragraph. At the close of this paragraph, we see some of the primary purposes for gathering into local churches. It says we're to walk together in particular societies or churches, for there, that is our mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which He requireth of them or requireth of us in the world. So notice here there are two reasons that we need to be gathered into local churches. The first one is mutual edification, which I just addressed. We're to gather into churches in order to edify, build up, encourage, strengthen, motivate, spur one another on in the faith. And then secondly, the due performance of public worship which God requires. This is, this is pretty interesting. and I, I, don't, I don't think that um, many Christians really think of worship this way. God requires public worship from His people. There is a command and expected offering of worship to be rendered to God and the gathered assembly is the place where we offer it. Now, I wonder if you think about gathering on the Lord's Day that way. When you're, when you're heading into church, are you thinking, God has required an offering of me. And I am duty-bound to bring my offering to the Lord. Do you come here to perform your prescribed worship? Very often we come, even in our circles, you know, we would sort of look down on people who... who uh, treat church in a very consumeristic fashion, but even in our own circles, we look at coming to the church to be fed. And we ought to be fed. But there's also an aspect of worship that we are bringing to God. Gathering with the church is not a show. It's not entertainment. It's not for spectators. You can imagine the, the, the type in ancient Israel. You're, you're literally carrying or walking your sacrifice to the temple. You've got it in your hands. You're smelling it. You're feeling its heartbeat. I'm going to bring my offering to the Lord. You didn't go and just... There wasn't a, a, a little felt rope guardrail where everybody got to stand around and just watch the priests you know, run around doing their thing. You were engaged. You brought something. And this is how we ought to think of worship under the new covenant. We, don't, we obviously don't bring bulls and goats, but we don't come to be spectators either. You don't come to watch a ceremony. You come to participate. We bring something to the Lord. Yes, we receive from Him just like they did. They received blessing when they came, but they came to give. It was through giving that they received blessing. We receive from Him and from His people. So, that's another reason that we gather. We gather because we've got a job to do. We've got worship to render to God. Three conclusions from this, this paragraph. Number one, 
being called to follow Christ is inseparable from being called to a local church. Now, these are not the same call. It's not not one-to-one. What I'm saying is they're inseparable. And when I say being called to a local church, I'm not implying that there's never reason that anybody should ever in their entire life be go from one church to another. I'm not saying that there's... It's like a marriage. You know, there's, there's the church for me that God has for me. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they, they're together. To be called to be a Christian is to be called into the participation and the assembly of a local church. Only under the most exceptional circumstances is this not the rule. It's sort of like baptism, you know. People, what, what, what do people say? Well, the thief on the cross didn't get baptized. The thief on the cross didn't join a church. Well, he was hanging with his blood pouring out of him, with a few minutes left to breathe. So that would be an extreme ex- exception, which proves that the rule, every, if that's all you got as an exception, the rule is, has proven itself. The exception proves the rule. The call to follow Christ is the call to local church participation. Listen to this from John Owen. He talks about the, the National Church of the Jews with all of its ordinances being taken away. He says, The Lord Christ hath appointed particular churches or united assemblies of believers amongst and by whom He will have all His holy ordinances of worship celebrated. And this institution of His at the first preaching of the gospel was invariably and inviolably, inviolably observed by all that took on them to be His disciples without any one instance of questioning it to the contrary in the whole world or the celebration of any ordinances of His worship amongst any persons, but only in such societies or particular churches. I I think when I read the things that are written by John Owen, I think there's a man who knew his Bible. He'd probably read it. He, He knew his history. And he says... This is the pattern. As soon as the gospel was declared, they gathered into churches, and nobody ever th- within orthodoxy has ever questioned this. This is what Christians have always done. They gather into churches. It's inseparable because this is the command of Christ. Secondly, if more are to be called, it will be through the ministry of the Word and Spirit. Again, this is not a general reference to just the presence of the inscripturated Word in the Bible. This is not saying, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to giving out Bibles, but this is the, the, when we read ministry of Word and Spirit, this is not slip a Bible in the, in the drawer at a hotel. This is talking about the, the official ministry of the Word of God in and through local churches. This is proclamation of the Word, the, the ministry, the service of the Word. Remember, the church is Christ's ministry to the church and the world. And remember the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now they didn't hear that and just scatter off that mountain in Galilee. Right? They went back to Jerusalem. And they waited for the promise of the Father. And then the Holy Spirit comes. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit and then just scatter all over the place. As a matter of fact, everybody except the apostles uh, scattered when the persecution came. But before that, they stayed in Jerusalem. They were united together. And we see that in the early chapters of the book of Acts. 
They did not scatter every man running to his own ministry. Christ gave the commission. Christ gave the Spirit. And the direct result is what we see in the Acts of the Apostles. Or as I told my children recently, we might could call it the Acts of Jesus Christ working through His Holy Spirit in the Apostles in the early church. That's a little longer. It doesn't fit so well at the top of the page. Well, what was the result? Christ gave the commission again. What, what did He mean? Read the book of Acts. What was the result? They preached the gospel. And we've been going through Acts. And I ask them every time we get finished, what, is, what are they doing in the book of Acts? Every chapter, what is happening? Preaching the gospel. That is the theme of the book. Preaching, preaching, preaching. Everywhere. Starting churches, appointing elders, setting things in order. Go to the next town. That's, that's what they did. That's how the Apostle Paul heard the Great Commission. The effectual call of the Good Shepherd comes through the ministry of the Word of that Good Shepherd through His instituted churches. And so as we are faithful to local churches, to our local church, we are, in a sense... Um, supporting, giving, lending our aid to the gathering in of souls in the coming generations. This is the way that Christ is going to do it. If more to be called, it's going to be through the ministry of the Word, by His Spirit, through His churches. And then thirdly, we should be working to truly walk together. I would wonder how can anyone walk together truly without some sort of commitment. How can anyone walk together unto edification if they're bouncing from place to place to place to place? I would, I would suggest that the modern concept of church hopping has not strengthened churches or the hoppers. Right? We've, we've not gotten holier because we've, had, we've got so many churches that people just shop. That's not turned out to our good. I'm one of the few who would say we might need less churches and less preachers, less, less ungodly and just more support in what's real and what's true. It's, it's like the worldly concept of dating except it's churches, right? Just move from one to the other. I wonder if we might have some members here who are still, still holding back a little from giving themselves fully in love to the saints in this church because deep down you're holding on to the idea that there might be something better out there. There, there might be a bigger fish in the sea, a better fish perhaps. You're, you will not be edified or edify others to the greatest potential until you're committed to love them. And you say, I'm just going to love them. And you begin to do it. Until you're willing to say, I love these people, this is my church, these are my people, and I'm going to pour myself out for them. Now, we all know people, I think, who are unwilling to leave what we, I think, in many cases, we could probably rightly call a synagogue of Satan. They're unwilling to leave because of uh, family ties, tradition. This is where I've always been. Whatever the excuse might be. We shouldn't, when we see that, we should not swing to the opposite extreme and pretend that the intention of a lifelong commitment to a local church is somehow bad. If this church becomes a synagogue of Satan, get out of here. Let's all get out of here. But if it's not, if we believe that, that the Lord is here, then there's nothing wrong with saying, within a reason, 
understanding things happen, life changes, whatever. My intention is to be here and to give myself for these people. As long as you have in the back of your mind, well, I, if, if, it gets, if something happens, I can, I can jump ship real quick. It's just like marriage. It's just like marriage. If you have in the back of your mind, well, as long as if it gets to a certain point, I'm out. Well, then you're never really going to give yourself in love to the other person. But if you say, I'm with this person, period. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm loving them. Then you're, you're really bought in. You're giving yourself to that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's what it means to walk together. We don't have to be afraid of falling into that pitfall that we, we know of so many others who just... You, you, you wish that they would... You wish they could be somewhere where they could grow, where they would be taught. And in their minds, this is where I've always been. This is where my family is. We don't have to take that and say, well, I don't ever want to be in that state, so therefore I never commit to anything. Be, be careful with those extremes. Walking together. It means we become companions in this pilgrimage called the Christian life, willing to pour ourselves out to make sure to the best of our ability that we will all stand together beside that great shepherd of the sheep in the eternal Sabbath. That seems to me like a worthy endeavor. It's easy, maybe it's easier for me to say, you know, I'm, I'm an elder here. I get paid to do this. If I didn't get paid, I wouldn't go anywhere. Try me. Um, it's a worthy endeavor to give yourself to, to people. It's not, about, it's not about a name. It's not about a sign. It's not about a logo, a website. It's, a, it's people. You look at people, you say, I love these people. I want them to go to heaven. I want them to be more like Jesus. So I'm going to give my life, my, my time to pray for them, to consider them, to, to, to check in on them, to ask about them. I'm still learning how to do that. Check in on people when they're sick. Things like that. Just loving people for their good, to let them know, I want you to be in glory with me. As Rutherford would say, your salvation is like two heavens for me. We ought to think that way. Let's pray together.